0: Crime to have to come preach after that psalm because it's such an emotional psalm that captures so much of the gospel. But I'm glad to see you here. It's uh, it's great to see that you were able to overcome the uh, the uh, festivities of Christmas and the post turkey sleepiness to make it here this morning. I'm reminded of a of a quote. Uh, If all people who go to sleep in church were laid end to end, they would be a whole lot more comfortable. (laughs) This has been attributed to Abraham Lincoln. It's also been attributed to Martha Taft, which I believe, but this is a pastor thing, uh, a pastor quote. You can't trust a single one of us, what we say when it comes to people, uh, quoting people. So who knows who said it? Anyway, our text this morning is John chapter 1 verse 14 where john says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory the glory of the only son from the father full of grace and truth let's pray heavenly father we thank you that you sent your son jesus jesus christ to come live among us that we would come this morning to worship you who became like us, who became human, who lived among us, that we might be sanctified, that we might be saved, that we might be drawn to yourself. We pray now, Father, that you would be with us this morning, that you would fill this room by your Spirit, that you would lead us into all truth through the work of your Holy Spirit this morning and that you would encourage and strengthen us to walk in this world for your glory rather than for our own. For it's the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Some years ago, I read a book by the the name uh, The Shape of Things to Come by Alan Hirsch and Michael Frost. Uh, It was an interesting book, but uh, one of the best things about it was an opening illustration where um, the authors who had been familiar with uh, farming practices in Australia, uh, contrasted farming practices in the United States to farming practices in Australia. So in, in the United States, when we, if we keep livestock, we tend to build fences. We build fences to keep our sheep in, keep other sheep out, keep predators out, keep theft from happening and all those kinds of things. And that's the way we, we think about pastures, that's the way we think about raising livestock and sheep. In Australia, there are many large ranches that were so large that you, if you were to build a fence like that, you wouldn't be able to keep it repaired. And so it wouldn't be feasible, it wouldn't be practical, practical to, to build a fence to protect your sheep. And so what they did is, is they would sink a well. And by sinking a well, they would then water the sheep. They would bring water up and feed the sheep right there at the well. And water was scarce and water is precious, and so the sheep learn that they won't stray too far away from the source of life or they will die. So the sheep stay close to the well, and by staying close to the well, they find the source of life to sustain their lives. In Jesus' day and in ours, people separate insiders from outsiders by building fences, metaphorical fences. We have arbitrary ways of deciding who's in and who's out. In Jesus' day, it was often by ethnicity or religious tradition, things that we would use or they would use to mark some as being in and some being out. But Jesus' ministry never did that. Jesus' ministry was always to remind Israel that they were to be a light to the nations. And in Jesus' birth, God sunk a well to bring others to himself, not by making us become like him, but because God became like us. He became human and he lived among us. And he drew us to himself by pointing us to him as the source of true life so that we might find genuine life in the word of God. And then he calls us to model this life, the life of the incarnation in our ministry to others. The text this morning, I almost feel guilty preaching from one verse. I don't think I've ever preached from one verse uh, in a full sermon before, but there's so much packed in here. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory the glory as the the only son from the father full of grace and truth earlier we learned uh in in this uh, in this chapter we learned that the word is jesus and that the word is god and the word was with god he is the second person of the trinity he is fully god but here we learned that the that the second person of the Trinity who is fully God, also became fully human. And that's amazing enough, the, re- the reality of the Incarnation, that he became fully human. But the word that he uses here to describe how he lived among us is the word dwelt. Some of, some of your translations might say, um, made his dwelling among us. And some translations might even say, tabernacled among us. The, the Greek word here is very similar to the Hebrew word shekinah, the word that was used to refer to God's presence in the tabernacle. It means shelter, but it refers to God's presence in the tabernacle, particularly in the wilderness wanderings. So as Israel was traveling from Egypt to the promised land, and God's presence was with them, as, as you might remember with the pillar of cloud and the, um, and, and the, tower and the pillar of fire, uh, that the glory cloud of, Israel, or of, of God would descend upon the tent of meaning and, and he would fill the temple or the tabernacle with his presence. That's the reference that's being made here. And that's why many of your translations will say, made his dwelling among us, because God was tabernacling among us in the person of Jesus Christ. The fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. In the same way that God's presence traveled with God's people on the, on the uh, wilderness wanderings from Israel to the promised land. So Jesus was, one, was walking with his people to lead us out of sin and misery and into eternal life. John knew something wonderful about Jesus, the word of God. That in the incarnation he became flesh. He took upon himself a human nature, and lived among us fully human in every, in every way. But he never ceased to be God. As the song, or as the song we, we just sang, when Mary kissed her child, she kissed the face of God. He never ceased to be God. God's presence was with us in the person of Jesus Christ who was fully human. But it was very important for John to emphasize that, John, that Jesus became fully human. There were heresies developing in John's day in the first century that later in the second century would develop into what we now call Gnosticism. What John was dealing with was people believing that Jesus was born just a regular human being, just like everyone else and the Word, or the Christ Spirit, descended upon Jesus at his baptism and then left him at his death. What John was saying here directly contradicts that. At Jesus' birth, the Word became flesh. The Word didn't just descend on Jesus at his baptism. The Word became flesh in the Incarnation. It was so important for John that we recognize that Jesus was, from the Incarnation on, fully human, even without ceasing to be fully God. The word or the Christ spirit in Jesus were not two different things. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus willingly came and lived among us. With all of our sins, with all of our suffering, with all of our brokenness, and with all of our failures, he didn't have to do that. He could have stayed on high, he could have stayed in heaven, he could have condemned us from there. He could have rewarded us when we do good, punish us when, he do, when when we do bad. He could have just pronounced judgments from on high, but that's not what he did, because he loved us. He knew we couldn't come to him. He knew we couldn't obey him. And so he came to us as a person, as a human being, and lived among us, the word became flesh, and tabernacle among us, the very presence of God in our midst. And he had no place to lay his head, but when we looked at him, we saw the glory of the one and only God. And that's the beauty of the incarnation, and it's the wonder of the Christmas season. And sometimes I think we minimize this we tend to think of the gospel as being simply Jesus coming to die for our sins and rise again but if that's all that Jesus had to do in the gospel there was no reason for an incarnation he could have just made himself human hung himself on a cross and rose again from the dead that's not the that's not the entirety of the gospel it's a it's, it's an it's an essential part of the gospel but it's not the whole thing Jesus came to live a human life among us, not just to punish, not, not just to have him be punished for our sins, but to live every facet of human life among us. He lived every facet of human existence from birth to childhood to adulthood to sickness, injury, joy, sorrow, suffering, success, even suffering from betrayal and death. All of this was important for him to live out the gospel message because he didn't just come to die. He came to live among us. And in this death, he he certainly paid for our sins. But in his life, his life substitutes for ours. So that when God looks at us, he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at us, he doesn't just see us as pardoned criminals, as people who have had our sins paid for. He sees us clothed in Christ's righteousness. He sees us as he sees his own son, Jesus Christ. And that happens because of the incarnation. Because he lived among us, completely faithful. There is no facet of human experience that's foreign to Jesus save sin itself. Jesus saved us. Not because he tells us to become like him, but because he became like us in the incarnation. And he bore the punishment of all of our sins on the cross so that we can be forgiven. But he also lived among us as a man so that God would see us as righteous. And if you believe in him, there is no sin. There is no facet of human existence that can take you away from him because Jesus lived it all for us. I remember being in Maryland. I was a pastor in a church up in Maryland, and there was a woman that came to me for counseling. She was in part of the recovery ministry, but often when people were struggling with various things, they would also send them to, to me for pastoral counseling. And so she came and she, she was just sharing her struggles. She had been abused greatly in her childhood, just unbelievable abuse that she had to endure as a child. And as she grew up, she became a Christian, but she just had a hard time believing that God truly loved her. And in, 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 in this is how it worked out in her mind. She believed the gospel. She believed that Jesus died for her sins. But she realized, or she, the way she internalized that in her mind, was that, well, God made this deal so that if we believe in him, we get eternal life. And I believe in him, so I get eternal life. My sins are forgiven because of this contract that God set up. But he doesn't really want me. He only accepts me because he has to, because Jesus died and now he's got to accept me. And my first response to her was to try to correct her theology. My first response to her was to try to help her see that not only does God give her salvation, but he also gave her the faith to believe. And that, she knew that. She knew that already. She, it wasn't a theological problem. It was just this feeling that she couldn't get past that God could actually love someone like her. And so we tried something different, and I pointed her to many of the Psalms of Lament in, um, in the Old Testament, particularly Psalm 13, where she could identify that even biblical writers could feel forsaken by God. Even biblical writers could call out to their God and say, why have you forgotten me? And even Jesus could call out, why have you forsaken me? From Psalm 22 on the cross. And then we pointed her to Jesus as the one who died not just as a part of a contract, although it was that, to get her into heaven, but as one who had lived the fullness of human experience, but without sin. There was nothing that she has gone through, none of the abuse that she had observed or observed, None of that none of that was foreign to Jesus because he lived a fully human life among us and he drew her to himself just like he did me and that was the beginning of the turn for her to be able to see that her entire that his Jesus entire life was lived as a substitute for ours And nothing about our human experience can thwart his love for us. We can truncate the gospel when we think of it simply as a matter of Jesus' death and resurrection. His life among us as a human is what makes our lives whole. Jesus didn't come just to die. He came to live as a human being among us. To live the entirety of human existence with us, and for us, and yet without sin. He sunk a well so that his life could be a wellspring of life for all who believe, that inasmuch as he obeys, his obedience substitutes for our lack of obedience. His sufferings bring us healing. His brokenness makes us whole. And we behold his glory because he was lifted up on the cross, but also because he lived this life for us, among us, as one of us. And he doesn't stop even there because the beauty of the gospel is not even just that he became incarnate to live among us. The incarnation then also becomes a model for us as we live our lives with each other. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus appeared to his disciples and he showed them his wounds. The wounds on his side and the wounds on his hands. And he says this, he says, peace be with you as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. There are two extremely important things here. First is that Jesus incarnation, his humanity lasted past his death. Even after his resurrection, he could show them his scars on his hands and on his side. And that's pretty amazing when you think about it. Because when we rise again from the dead, our wounds will be healed. But these two wounds that he received, he kept. So that we could look on him and see his wounds in his physical body as a human being. And be reminded of the glory of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But even more than that, he tells us that he's sending us out in the same manner that God sent him to us. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. The incarnation becomes a model for the way that we are to minister to each other. He's calling us to sink a well in the lives of others. For the sake of the gospel. And this type of ministry is diametrically opposed to the way we seek to minister often in human nature. We like to build fences. We like to find ways to say that you belong with me and, and you don't. We come with easy ways of doing that that are completely arbitrary. And we don't usually say these things out loud, but we vote with our feet. And if you've been involved in the church long enough, you've experienced this in one way, shape, or another, being told maybe it's you have the wrong ethnicity, maybe you have the wrong gender, maybe you have the wrong political views, maybe you have the wrong theological tradition, maybe you have the wrong style of dress, maybe you have the wrong personality type, or maybe even you have the wrong sins. And the church can become segregated by the fences that we build. Where the church becomes just as segregated as any place else. And Jesus came to tear those fences down. I had a friend um, who ministered with me in the church that I was a pastor in Maryland. He was, had, took, had taken a seminary class when he, I believe, was in Philadelphia. The pastor uh was told to he needed to share the gospel with a prostitute the whole class was had to go out into downtown philly and share the gospel with prostitutes and so that's what he did he went downtown and shared the gospel with a prostitute and he was preaching the next morning in church and this particular woman that he was speaking with he said you're if you want you can certainly come to church um, tomorrow morning so next morning he gets in church and this is very traditional church this is the kind of church where the pastor sits up on stage. And so since he was preaching, he was sitting up on stage. And, uh, and he sees this woman come in the back of the church on a Sunday morning. And she's dressed as a prostitute in a staunchly conservative church. And as she walks forward, you can see her realizing everyone in the entire congregation is looking at her. And she's starting to feel smaller and smaller and more self-conscious and and more self-conscious. And she's starting to feel everyone in the church saying, how dare you come to church dressed like that? But she came and she sat down on the front row. And another woman, an elderly lady in the back of the church, saw this. And she got up and she followed her down. And my friend was worried. He didn't know what she was going to say. But she came down and sat on that front row right next to that woman and put her arm around her. And I have no idea what she said, but her arm spoke volumes. Jesus is life, and you are welcome here, just as you are. She didn't have to say a word to sink a well. Jesus came to sink a well. Because none of us are worthy of coming to him. And he comes to us. And he says, I'm the wellspring of life. And you're welcome with me. Just as you are. He takes our sins. He takes our sufferings. He takes our painful past. He takes our style of dress, our political beliefs, all of it, just as we are. And he says that just as the Father has sent me, so send I you. And we are called to live incarnate lives, entering into the broken lives of others and pointing them to the true wellspring of life, Jesus Christ Himself. We are called to sink a well, not build fences. To build a ministry of incarnation in the world around us. And that's the amazing thing. And in as much as when Jesus came and we beheld his glory through his incarnation, when we live incarnational ministry in the lives of others, others can see his glory in us. Not because we become like little Jesuses. We can't. We are flawed. We are broken. But through our brokenness, God's glory can shine. And he can use us to bring others to himself, he can use others to bring us closer to him. And we see this in the ministry of Paul, chief of sinners, broken before God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, he describes his ministry to the, to the church in Thessalonica when he came there for the first time. He says, we loved you so much that we delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Because you had become so dear to us. Notice the order here in the verse. It starts with love. He says it twice We loved you so much that we delighted to share with you the gospel of God. And then he ends because you had become so dear to us. The love and affection that he had developed for the people of Thessalonica were the reason why he spoke. But because he loved, he was not satisfied just with talking, he didn't just tell them the gospel. Notice what he says, we gave you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Just talking the gospel isn't enough. He lived his life among them, and by living his life honestly among them as a Christian, he could not help but share the gospel, because that's an honest life. He shared the gospel in the context of sharing his life for others. He sunk a well. He didn't build fences. And we need to tear these fences down. <laughs> I remember arguing with a guy when I was in college. I've shared this story with you before, but I feel like I, I need to share it again. I was in college and I lived in a suite with uh, several other people and one of them argued with me about homosexuality. And I told him all the reasons why it was wrong and I gave him all my best arguments and I, I made my case. Because that's what I cared about, was making my case. And uh, afterwards, he looked at me and he said, you, more than anyone else, makes me not want to become a Christian. I found out later that he was gay and he was struggling with his Christian upbringing and didn't know how to handle it. And I just beat him up. And I know, I remember thinking at the time, if I knew he was gay, I wouldn't have talked to him that way. And I didn't, because I didn't know, I didn't have any right to speak to him that way. The reality is, he didn't need me to tell him why he was wrong. He needed me to be his friend. He needed me to care for him. And as I look back on it, I, as I, I wanted to just go back and apologize. And I've also wanted to go back and just do it differently. But part of Part of me is actually kind of glad because I'm I'm actually very much overwhelmed by his honesty to me, that he was willing to share that to me. He was a better friend to me by telling me that than I was to him. <coughs> and I got to be a different person because of what he told me. Because at the time, all I was doing was building fences. All I was concerned about was winning an argument, and I forgot about loving the person. We need to sink wells. And I know it can be misunderstood here. You know, the church does have things like church membership, and church membership is important, but church membership is never designed to be something to keep people out who believe in the Christian faith. Church membership is important because we don't want to go to people who haven't committed to a local church body with things like tithes and offerings and things like that. We want people to realize if they are here because they're here, then you're welcome. You're welcome. This is, the point is that we can easily minister by making fences to exclude. We can easily do ministry by exclusion rather than sinking a well. We can pass judgment on others for the sins that they have that are different from ours. Rather than entering into the lives of others with acceptance, with love, because this is precisely how Jesus came to us. He entered into our experience. He lived in our brokenness. He suffered at, the hands, at, at, the, at, at our sins. He experienced our joys our sorrows, and our pain, and he loved us, gave himself for us, and rose again from the dead, that he might be a wellspring of life for all of us. The church's mission is to dig a well, to express Jesus as the water of life for a lost and broken world. So let me ask you, as we are leaving behind Christmas, moving into the new year, These are times when we start thinking about New Year's resolutions and what we're going to do in the upcoming year. Let me ask you, what are some wells that you need to dig? What are some friendships that you need to build by just putting your arm around somebody you love, regardless of what they might be struggling with? What are some ways that you can tell someone Jesus' life, and you are welcome here just as you are. And let me also ask you, what are some fences you might have built? Some relationships that you have caused tension that maybe you can go to them and say, I'm sorry, and begin anew. Christmas is not just an event we celebrate once a year. Christmas is a celebration of, a, of the incarnation as a model of ministry. And we all fail at it, every single one of us. But God can use that too. He can use our brokenness. He can use our failures to draw us to himself, to draw us closer to him, so that the glory of Jesus can be seen in us as his broken vessels who are brothers of our risen king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us, that when you saw us in our sin and misery, you didn't just stay in heaven and condemn us, but you became like us as a man. You lived among us. You gave your life for us. that we might be seen by the Father as the Father sees you. We pray, Father, that you would allow us to be overwhelmed by your grace to us and allow that grace to also translate into the way we love others so that others might come to know you and others might come closer to you because of what you do through us. For it's the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.